You are listening to the People-Centric Podcast, where we talk through the toughest challenges that people face at work and give practical advice to fixing those challenges. Thanks for joining our movement to create workplaces that are happier, healthier, aligned, and empowered by putting people at the center of all that we do. Hey, people-centric leaders. So this is Don Harkey. And back in the day when I was an engineer, I worked for a company and the company got a new CEO and the new CEO came in and the new CEO really made a splash inside the organization. They were the first outside CEO that was hired inside this organization in almost a hundred years. If you know me at all, I am very narrowing down which organizations I work for because you're like, what organization got a new CEO that was a hundred years old, Don? It's not people-centric. I'll give you a clue. It's not people-centric, but the new CEO came in. And one of the most interesting things that he did short-term was he came in, it was how he looked, how he dressed. And 3M was a, I'm sorry, I just blew it. But the company that I was talking about, we'll just, we'll just call it something else. But what? The, it's okay, we can keep that in. We can keep that in. The uh, He showed up and it was very traditional culture. And a lot of the executives would wear suits and ties. And the, the company was very technical. So a lot of the executives were also very male because they came from internal. A lot of them were former engineers, which is a very male heavy industry. And he came in and he didn't wear a tie. He would wear a jacket and a shirt with an open collar and no tie. And the first time he went into a meeting, I think people gasped, like when they looked at him, they're like, oh my gosh, that's the CEO and he's not wearing a tie. That's blowing me away, but he's still wearing the jacket, the suit jacket. And he did that. That became the fashion. Like I think more people do it that way today than they did before, but this was quite a while ago. And so I think he was kind of a trendsetter from that standpoint. But what I noticed and other friends of mine noticed inside the organization was something that happened fairly quickly was other executives stopped wearing ties and they started doing the open collared jacket look, you know, again, mostly male. And you saw that look, and that was a look that you could almost tell, like, you must be on the executive team because you're wearing that. And then what we started to see was what you hear a lot for advice for employees is dress for the job you want, not the job that you have, is especially in the corporate office, you would see people who were not on the executive team start to wear the jackets and the open collars. And what we started noticing were those people that did that very often were getting promoted fairly quickly. Because they looked like they were an executive. They had that executive presence. The idea that I am radiating the idea that I could be an executive on this team heading in that direction. So we've been asked by some clients of ours to actually talk about this, this topic. And we've really explored it in depth with our clients. And we want to take talk about this idea of executive presence. How does it help companies? How does it help employees who are ambitious and want to move up the ladder and become an executive someday? And then we're also going to talk about how that can hurt companies. How can that hold us back? Is it a good idea for us to pick future leaders for our companies based on what they look like? And is that something that really happens? And are we even aware that it happens? Hint, we may not be aware that that's how that happens. So I've got a couple of people who have very strong executive presence, at least the way that I would define that word. And so we've got Stephanie Anderson on the call. Stephanie, tell me a little bit. So if I say executive presence, like what do you think about when you think about executive presence? 
I think for me, it usually boils down to like confidence, you know, for me, executive presence. Cause obviously I do not equate being an executive with being male girl power since the early nineties over here. Um, but I think I equate it to that confidence, right? Like I walk into a room and I can bring people in. I can bring people together. You know, I can engage people. I kind of know what I'm talking about and doing. I have just kind of that internal compass and direction that is helping me move forward and bring others with me. I like that a lot. And that seems like we're both nodding here. I know you can see us if we're talking, but when we were not talking, both Philip and I were nodding, saying the confidence is absolutely a trait. I think we would both agree with that. We've also got Philip Herzog on our team. Sorry, I choked on my cough drop. That was ironic. I, I literally. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that's ironic. That's the opposite of what the cough drop is supposed to do. Philip, <laughs> tell us a little, what do you think about when you think of executive presence? You know, one of the things I was considering uh, for me, uh, executive presence is someone who can ask the right questions. So they're definitely confident, but um, I think the type of question they ask, the implications when it's answered, you know, that kind of shows usually a horizontal and vertical impact because they have a lot on their minds. And they're probably not asking, you know, where do we take the trash out on Wednesdays? And these really minute process pieces, it's, it's a different kind of thing. So both the questions they ask, uh, and then I think the relationships they have with their team, they're typically, at least where we're from in our part of the world, I think a lot of our local executives that just knock it out of the park have very high quality relationships with both peers and then people that report to them. Ooh, I love that concept of the idea that maybe the best executives seem to be surrounded by some of the best people. And is that an accident or is that deliberate, right? So we'll have to think a little bit about that. So let's start off this discussion kind of thinking a little bit more about what is the traditional view of an executive. So sometimes there's things that we think about deliberately, like if you're asked the question in a podcast episode, or for those of you that are listening at home or watching at home, thinking about this, you're probably listening to and saying, yes, I like the confidence. Yes, it's the types of questions and the relationships they build. But let's break it down. Like if you had a, if you had to answer that question in two seconds, what are some of the traditional views of an executive? What does an executive presence look like? I think traditionally you hear like they command a room, you know, they're super high achievement oriented people, they're trailblazers, they're going to come in and break down all the walls and make big moves and do some of those things. And they wear power suits while they do it. Yeah, I like that. Philip, would you add anything there of a traditional executive? You know, I think maybe there's this mental picture of they walk in the room and 20 people walk in behind them, you know, like that's their, those are the people that their entourage. So kind of just this power broker with a little army always following them before and behind. Yeah, that's what comes to mind with the, with the executive presence mentality sometimes. You're reminding me of the open collared CEO who shall remain nameless that no one could possibly figure out who I was talking about because I did not slip up earlier and actually say the company's name. And no one can go look up the name of who this executive was, but he actually came out and visited our plant. And it's funny, Philip, you talk about the entourage because he absolutely had the entourage that followed him around. And when he came into, they, they were having some meetings and he was in, they were going to serve lunch and they got a whole bunch of boxes of Panera. You know, you get the, you get the boxes and it has the different sandwiches and you kind of get what you get. You don't throw a fit. They weren't labeled. It was just like, take what you want and everything else. And the CEO excused himself to go use the, the bathroom. And while he was gone, his entourage grabbed the boxes from everybody. Some people had already taken the boxes and they took them back 
And they started flipping them open frantically, looking for what they thought his favorite sandwich would be. And they actually put together a customized box for him with the sandwich that they thought he would like, the chips that they thought he would like, and the cookie that they thought he would like. Both put it back together really quickly. And then when he came back into the room, they handed him the box that he wanted. I remember a couple of friends of mine who were in the room, first of all, kind of watched that and were like, wow. But their response was like, it's good to be the king, right? That is like, that is kind of, that's awesome as the CEO. But how does that feel? Like you guys are both making faces right now. How does that feel in terms of executive presence? I'm kind of glad that you can't see our faces when we're not talking on YouTube because I made like the gagging face several times of like, ugh, I, that mentality to me, I'm like, that's not executive president presence. That's like cockiness. You just created like a weird monarchy. Like who is this person? Like the queen of England or the Pope, like that they get this special sandwich. Like I picked the turkeys up and I'm sorry if you didn't plan ahead. <laughs> How do you know he likes turkey subs? That's that's very executive, apparently. It's the turkey is the key. Uh, apparently, that is the, if you didn't know that, it's the ex- ultimate executive sandwich. It's yeah, a turkey if, sandwich. Yeah, ham sandwiches are career limiting. That's what we're trying to get across. Don't be careful about that. And, and, <laughs> and if you pick tuna, forget about it. You don't even deserve to work here. That's, that's the end. Well, I mean, to eat a tuna sandwich during a business meeting is a bold move. That is a bold move, especially when you have a long afternoon together. That's absolutely true. I have unfortunately made that mistake. Just being vulnerable for everybody. I've done that before because um, I do like tuna. But okay, so I want to unpack this a little bit because I think it is a really good example. So we all kind of have had an icky response to that, right? Never, I don't think any of us like that story. And I, first time I heard that, I was not in the room. So I heard it from other people. So take that a little bit with a grain of salt. But I heard that story and I, I still it's carried with me for a long time in my career. To be fair for that CEO, that CEO didn't ask them to take away all the sandwiches and put all that together. They did that after the CEO left the room. But I think we all work with organizations enough to know, like, why do we still kind of blame the CEO for that? You know, in that situation, you know, even if they weren't in the room, it does imply a culture that people knew this is a good thing. We'll be rewarded if our CEO gets this special customized sandwich that's Frankenstein from everyone else's lunch. Um, I was I was in an organization, a very large one as well, similar. We were at the summit for some groups who achieved some things. And so it was really interesting. I ended up accidentally on the very front row. And so when this person walked in with their whole entourage and they were well-respected because they'd worked up from the very bottom of the company to the top, um, this really cool thing. But it was very interesting because the second they left or needed anything, there's like a frantic panic almost to just get it for them and, and do the thing. Um, and so I think at least the, the a lot of the rest of us, you kind of get this idea that there's a lot of pressure if you're that close to the top, which probably comes from having to get things done, certainly. So some of it's justified, but the other part, it does leave a bad taste in your mouth, worse than a bad turkey club sandwich, because it just seems like we're not on the same page or on the same team uh, if your needs are so, so much greater uh, than mine or the other people's. And why are we really here? Is it to serve one person really well or to build something together? Yeah. And I would say with that, I think Philip, maybe you had a rosier view of it than I did where you're like, if we do this, good things will happen. I think mine was more of the punitive thought of like, if you don't do this, heads will roll. And that there is a culture of like, we can demand things 
of one another and that something had to happen at some point for those people to do that. Nobody just like, I would never do that for Don. Like, not that again, I don't like you enough to like help you make a sandwich, but never on my own accord would I grab everyone else's sandwiches and be like, what did you order? Oh, Don would like that. I'm going to take that from you. So it's created this culture of like, we can demand things from each other. And if you don't follow the rules, then you're probably going to get in trouble for that in some respect. Yeah. And those were other executives that did that. I mean, it's not like he had a bunch of assistants, personal assistants that were sandwich makers that were following him around to make sure that all that happened. Those are other like vice presidents and directors and presidents that are following him around. That's his entourage. They're all executives. They're all top level people who suddenly panicked and were taking away sandwiches from like frontline people and frontline managers and stuff to try to make the right sandwich and the message that that had to send. You know, on that same trip to show you kind of the impact too. not trying to throw this one person under the bus, by the way, I think we're just trying to talk about from the organizational standpoint, but this on the same trip, that plant manager liked to go tour the was going to tour the plant and our plant manager had called other plants that he had toured and said, what's that CEO looking for? And they kept talking about, he goes into the warehouses and if he sees a full warehouse, he thinks you've got too much inventory. Now, a full warehouse doesn't mean you have too much inventory. It could mean that your warehouse is too small. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have too much inventory, right? But so what the plant manager actually did was rented some trailers and had most of the inventory moved behind some trees on the back of our property so that when the CEO walked through that facility, they didn't see full warehouses. Like, I promise you, if we if we could get that CEO on this call, that CEO would, first of all, be stunned that that happened, would have no idea that that happened, and would say, that was never my intention for you to do that, especially hiding things from me on that. However, just like we talked about with the sandwich, there's probably things that the CEO had done and how they led the team, how they responded to other people that created that situation where also the plant manager felt like they literally had to hide something from his boss's 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 boss. Yeah. And what I'd add to that, that I've seen organizations is like, sometimes there's the CEO has like a bouncer is what I'll call it. There's somebody on the team that is the bouncer and you don't get to see the leader or the CEO. You have to go to this person. And then that person kind of gets to decide, do you get in to see them or, or not? Will they speak to you or not? And I think even sometimes there's that of that weird, like that's another weird type of executive presence and, and, and kind of a power play of executive presence of like, oh yeah, like I can, again, I can tell you yes or no. And there are certain people in our organization who are untouchable, unreachable, like you poor little peons working um, in the regular offices. We're up in the executive C-suite with our lush leather chairs and you you can't talk to us. Now, is it easy inside of an organization like that, if you think about that traditional executive presence idea, that if we think that's what an executive presence looks like, so if we see somebody that has that command presence, the people that other people tend to cater to and try to help in that kind of space, is it more likely for those type of people to get promoted within the organization? And then is it good for the organization if that happens? I mean, I think they're hugely more likely to get promoted into those. Cause if that's how we've defined a successful leader, then we're going to be looking for other people 
who do that well. And I will say we've used the word command several times. And if you're a strengths finder person, you know that that is one of the strengths listed. I know Diana on our team has that in her top five. It's been in my top five before. So I don't want to make it seem like we're crapping on um, that as a skill set, but there is kind of a dark side to that, right? Of like, there can be a way where that strength manifests as a weakness where it's like, I've started bulldozing people out of my way <laughs> to get things done versus I stepped in to help the team when they needed somebody who could lead in this way. So, so that's a great point. Go ahead, Philip. Well, I, you know, there's, there's someone uh, locally here for a fairly large organization um, that I've gotten to know. And one of the things he mentioned to me before is exactly this character, Stephanie mentioned this gatekeeper. And this person said, you know, in my role, everyone asks me for things, friends reach out jobs for their kids, jobs for themselves, this kind of this nonstop fatigue of you're the one people tap when they have questions. And so he said, I only pay attention to the things that really come across the table that have value. That's why I have such a good gatekeeper. We invested in a good gatekeeper. So I think that other blend of that role is there has to be some system in place to help, whether it's command, you know, whatever the strengths you have are to filter through to those quality pieces. But I think the question into your, even your story, Don, if that's the story people are telling themselves, the amount of expense and culture that it shows when someone would go and spend money and time to unload a warehouse to hide things, right? Because I imagine in this situation, if a year down the road, you need a larger warehouse, now leadership has this idea, you had a lot of empty space. Why in the world would you ask? So you've now gone and created this whole situation that's just not true. And so some simple, clear communication and just direct understanding would be very valuable. So if leadership doesn't get that, they're only going to become more disconnected. Yeah, the cultural implications of that warehouse story were significant because essentially you just taught every employee that was involved with that and had visibility of that, that deceiving management is expected and normal. And I don't know that the plant manager necessarily thought that included him as well in that situation, which absolutely did happen. It happened after that. And I remember people who did it on different things. I can remember one person who maybe had some printer cartridges because they were taking printer cartridges away from people because they didn't want them to have their own printers. I can remember one young engineer who hid printers in a filing cabinet along with printer cartridges when they came around to collect them so that he could still have his own printer and printer cartridges so he didn't have to walk to the main break room or the main office area to be able to print things. I'm not going to say the name of the engineer, but it, it rhymed with Ron. I'll just say it that way. Uh, it, you're teaching that everybody, like you're setting that expectation. Uh, you know, you both talked about strengths. So I'm going to list two sets of strengths and I'm going to ask a question. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what Gallup does in this. They, Gallup did some interesting research in this area. So I'm going to use Gallup Strengths Finder uh, strengths. So here's two different people with two sets of strengths. So person number one has these strengths, command, self-assurance, competition, significance, and achiever. Okay, command, self-assurance, competition, significance, and achiever. So if you don't, if you're not familiar with Gallup, you can think about that as command is a is kind of a presence thing. It's I'm good at being able to know what to do in difficult situations. Self-assurance is a confidence. Competition is a, I'm com competitive with other people. Significance is I like to do really significant things. And achiever is I like to win. Okay. Now, let me list five strengths from a second person and see think about what that person might be like. And think about if they would make a good executive or not. Positivity, harmony, empathy, includer, and relater. 
So positivity is somebody who's like Philip, who likes to, who's happy and likes to think about things in the best light, always has friends with everywhere that they go. Uh, a harmony person is likes to see everybody be successful and things just working well together. Empathy is somebody who likes to uh, connect with others and is very good at feeling what other people feel. Includers are also good at like bringing other people in and say, I'm going to connect people. Relators are really good at relating to each other and other people. So traditionally, which one of those two people, the command, self-assurance, competition, significant achiever, or the positivity, harmony, empathy, includer, relater would be considered to be the executive? I mean, I think traditionally it's that first list, right? Like that is what we've said executives are, is they have these traits, they have these things, they can step in, and that some of those other strengths have been branded as like soft Like those are about feelings, not leadership is what I've heard people say before. And that someone, I mean, I even had a leader I worked with once that if someone had empathy in their top five, they were like, well, I don't even know if that person can actually effectively lead because they were so on the other end of the spectrum that they could not see how those things could be a leadership strength. Yeah. I think about the movie. I've talked about this before. I think it's U-541, the Matthew McConaughey movie. You remember that one with the submarine? Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you haven't. But in that movie, the whole thing is he's the first officer who's pretty, or the I don't think, the chief, I think is what they call it, who's, who's really connected with all the people in the sub and everybody really likes him. And the captain keeps telling him, he's like, you cannot connect with people. You cannot form relationships. Leadership is all about command and knowing what to do. And you just have to do that. And the whole movie is like teaching him to be cold and not have those relationships. It's a very traditional perspective of what management and executive leadership looks like is you have to have that command presence the moment that I, I can't relate to people. I can't be, it's business. It's not personal, that kind of a thing. Now, some of you may have listened to this and said, well, I know where you're going because this is a people-centric podcast and I love this podcast and I listen to this all of the time and I share this with others all the time and I show this with my coworkers, all those different things. That's a shameless plug in there for those of you listening and watching to share the podcast out there with others. And you may be thinking maybe it's the positivity, harmony, empathy, includer, relater person, because those are all very soft skills that connect with people. Maybe that's the right executive person. But I'm here to tell you that Gallup would say you're wrong. However, Gallup would also say the traditional perspective is also wrong. What Gallup determined when they dove into different strengths and said, which strengths are make the best executive, the most effective executive, not the perspective of what a great executive is, but actually in terms of performance as an executive, what they discovered is that it doesn't matter what your strengths are. It doesn't matter. You can have any set of strengths and be an executive. What does matter is, first of all, A, do you understand your own strengths and how to use them and how not to use them? So Stephanie already referred to how every strength has a dark side and a light side to it, right? So if you're command, it allows you to make decisions. It allows you to take control of situations. It can also, on the dark side of that, allow you to be overbearing and run over people, right? Every strength has a dark side and a good side to it. It's two sides of the coin, right? Good executives, effective executives understand that for themselves and they understand how to dial their strengths up and down the right direction to make sure they're using them the right way. But they also have the trait of being able to do the same thing for others. So they are able to manage their own strengths, but they're also able to manage the strengths of others so that they know that if they have people on their team that have different strengths, that they know how to work with them. 
They know how to leverage those strengths. They know how to inspire them and help them to use them the right way. So it's not the executive presence thing really isn't about what strengths you have. It's about how you use those strengths and how you use the strengths of others. Does that match with what we see with the people that we work with? You know, I think national studies show, at least in the U.S., that typically people who are promoted fastest are the ones who talk loudly when it comes to communication styles, are the first to speak. They speak frequently and they speak for a long time. And I happen to be an empathetic person that falls in that category. So that's great news for me. But especially when we facilitate groups or just look at other people, um, you find that there is much more of a diverse range of people who are leaders um, and then especially too, there's great value in those who take more time to process things. And even the communication styles we talk about internally, whether you're a whiteboarder visionary to a processor and analytical. And to your point, Don, if you know, if you're, if you're wise to your own shadow, that's a podcast we recently talked about and the sun sh- shiny side of your strengths too, um, that does help you build a better team. Because at the end of the day, no one leader, you know, rests an entire organization on their own shoulders. And so the more effectively you work with others does take that self-awareness. So I think we see it work itself out, but there's still that, that thought that it's very different than that. Yeah. I would say, um, Don and I were having a conversation a little bit about this the other day, because we work with a lot of executives and a lot of CEOs and every single one of them is different. I don't, I think if we took, had all of them take the strengths finder, we wouldn't have a single CEO that we know or work with that would have the exact, you know, same five, you know, or, or there may not even be a lot of consistency across the board and they all lead very differently. And many of them lead very, very effectively. And so it's kind of this myth, right? That there is like this ideal CEO personality, or there's really only one way to effectively lead a company. And I think that's one thing that our team kind of takes to heart. And, you know, we read a lot of the business books and we read all of the science and the psychology behind how people work, but it's also why we don't ascribe to like one specific model or one specific book, or this is how your team is going to work. And you're all going to do this process now, because it could be completely different based on the makeup of the people that are there. Um, and we'd rather look at, okay, what are the strengths that you have? And are you aware of what the weaknesses are? And it's not to say that you focus on the weaknesses and that you have to try to overcome all of those. Cause you really just can't you kind of have your personality at the end of the day. You can't always change some of those things about yourself, but if you're aware of them, you can work with them. Um, and you can work together on those things as a team when you're all aware of that. So I think it's just, it's a little bit of a myth, right? That there is this ideal executive presence that there is this ideal CEO or executive persona. Yeah. And if you have that ideal persona, even if it's an unconscious, like even if you don't recognize that you have it, we work with lots of organizations where they'll talk about promoting somebody into the C-suite or in the suite seat to this, to the key role or within a department. And you'll say, well, who do you think should be promoted? And you'll see people go, well, obviously that person seems like they're there, but I don't know. And then they'll start talking about what the challenges are for that person. It's the obviously that person should be promoted piece that sometimes we're surprised. And a lot of times it's not because of some of the things that that person brings to the table in terms of an executive, 
but because they check off some of those unconscious boxes, they dress the part, they they have that command presence. They talk about what they do, what Philip talked about. If they speak louder, they take the command. They seem to just take control of meetings when they jump into things. And that may not be your best choice. So if we are thinking about executive presence, like if we're going to take that back, let's take that term back and say real executive presence in our company is this. What do you think that executive presence really, really is? What makes a good executive? I mean, I think it is it is the ability to really engage your team and have good self-awareness and teach other people around you to do that too, right? Like when you were talking, Don, it made me think like a lot of times we'll see people get promoted because they are a good reflection of the person who was there before. They're like, well, they're a lot like this person. So they could step in and they're like, okay, well, then now we're hiring based on personality, not really is this the right person for the role or based on skill set. So I think a great leader can see that and they can kind of see through those things. They have the self-awareness to understand. Maybe, maybe I am a significance person. Maybe that's one of my strengths or I have a developer. And so I see the best in people. I want to push them to grow. I need to make sure I'm not blind to that sometimes and just promote people because I really like them, you know, or I do business deals with people because I really like them when I maybe should have looked into that vendor more. I maybe should have looked into this person more. Maybe, maybe that person didn't have the right skill set. And then engaging the team with that of, we were saying earlier, I think some of the best leaders are the ones who are surrounded by really successful people. And it's not because they're collecting shiny objects is that they actually do bring along people who are like, wow, like that person is way smarter than me at this, or they're better than me than that. And that is not intimidating to me whatsoever because our company gets better when we have a lot of different people with great skill sets here. Yeah. We've helped people. We've helped organizations find CEOs. And one of the questions that we always ask is what do you, what qualifications or what characteristics do you think you need in the next CEO? And a lot of times what will happen is they'll say, well, I need somebody who's a great communicator. They need to have a great decision-making. They need to be a strategic thinker. They need to really know the numbers. They really need to understand the details, but also the big strategic vision. And I'm going to go back to a recent episode that we did on the unicorn. The person that can do all of those things really is a unicorn. Like I just described very different strengths profiles. Like I get along with people, but I can be commanding and I know the details and I know the big picture and all those different things. I think a lot of organizations fail because they hire somebody that looks like they're the unicorn and not pay attention to really what they do well, right? And so we say like, what are the most important characteristics? If you only have a couple of those things, what's the most important thing moving forward? Do you need an excellent communicator right now? Do you need somebody who's strategic? Do you need somebody who's detailed? Those are nice to have. I'm not saying you eliminate those things if you do get somebody that checks off multiple boxes, but you should think about like, what's the most important characteristics our executives need to have, especially for this position. And even within the team that they have, you have to look at the team that's there and say, what strengths do we already have on the executive team? And what strengths could we fill in the gaps for? When you were saying that, you made me think of, I, it was about two years ago, there was an article that uh, Jeff Bezos was in the news because he said, and I, I don't know if he's an icon, all things the healthiest leadership, but one thing he came out very openly and said is that, all companies have an end, he said. Someday Amazon will end. And it sounded very depressing. But one piece within that, though, I think that is interesting for a leader is kind of this ownership of, of the ego piece. 
you know, I think it can really be easy as a leader if, to your point, Don, if someone steps in and there's a needed communicator, you know, it's probably not one person who communicates all things for an organization. And an organization should hopefully outlast a single person, which due to retirement or life change or any of those things will eventually happen. So I think one piece of executive presence as well uh, comes almost with this humility that you want this organization and institution to go beyond you, which it came before you. Uh, and even if you're a founder, that's even a founder of an organization, one of their biggest fears is how will it continue on? So if that is your mindset, I think you also instill a culture of coachability, both for yourself, you know, you need to grow, whether you found it or inherit something or, you know, take on this new role to then put passing it forward, which includes building new leaders, building systems that can take things beyond yourself and knowing that you're, you're not the answer to every problem. Yeah. Philip, you made me think of something too, of like, I think one thing we haven't talked about with executive presence is that executives have to be these amazing and compelling public speakers, right? Like they have to be able to stand and give a speech that just, man, makes us all feel like we're glad we're here. We're alive. We're going to do this and, and all of that. And to Don's point earlier of like, Yes, you need you need as an executive to be able to communicate effectively and in an engaging way. Does that mean that I have to be great at giving large public speeches? Does that mean I have to be able to give a TED talk or motivate the masses? You know, and I think um, to even tie this into our own like history of look at I mean our past presidents, right? Like even kind of the persona of a president has changed in our country with the advent of television. Um, and they, if you read some of the historians talking about different past presidents, um, not all of them were great public speakers until we started televising debates. And then it became like, oh, well, then this person, I observed their body language this way or how they said it. And it was really inspiring. And we've kind of attached that also to our CEO. So even thinking about your company, like, do you really need this person to be able to like, give the rousing speeches and do that? Or do you need them to actually communicate, communicate well, to communicate with um, empathy, to be able to share facts effectively, to disseminate information to someone? Because I think if you do it that way, it really opens up of like who could be a great executive and who could be a great leader. And maybe this is a person that maybe like is on the spectrum or has some type of disability that maybe wouldn't be traditionally considered, but wow, they've got amazing skills. If we can kind of remove maybe some of the smoke that's in the way of what an executive is. Yeah. So we've talked about the strengths of the person doesn't really matter, but how they use those strengths does. And then whether that's a fit for the organization in the moment also does have an impact for an executive, like is, is the timing right for the strengths that that person brings to the table. Uh, we also talked about a good clue for a good executive is look at the people around them. If they seem to be surrounded by people who are successful, then they might be that type of person who just brings success to others through by building trust with others, by developing others. That is a good skill set. That's a universal executive skill set. I know another one that we talked about a little bit earlier today in terms of an executive is I think that an executive has a different mindset. And here's the mindset. So I think about like, what's the difference between a supervisor, a manager, a director, and an executive? If you think about those three different levels, right? So to me, a supervisor is somebody who's pretty new, usually pretty new in the management circles, and they're working, but they really understand the process of the thing that they do and their team. So let's say that group is, they have a process that they're running, and there's another team over here that's working, and they're struggling with this team over here. 
a supervisor typically is not expected to reach across to the other team to say, hey, you're not doing your stuff right. We need to work better together. How can we do that? Like most supervisors, you wouldn't expect them to do that. That's thinking, the supervisor's thinking, how do I influence my team? How do we work better together? But they're not thinking across the aisle, so to speak, to be able to break through that. Executives absolutely think across the aisle. Executives have no barriers in terms of what, what's going to hold them back. I think executives think, okay, if I need to change something on my team, I'm going to change something on my team. If I need to work better with the other team, we're going to do that. If we need to change something with the customer, we're going to call that. I'll bring in resources that we need. That to me is one of the things that if you are a supervisor, manager, director, and you're trying to work yourself up into an executive position, if you want to show the company that you work for that you can be effective is break through those barriers. Like think outside of that, like, okay, I'm struggling to work with department X over there. So I'm going to go have a meeting with department X and I'm going to see like, what can we do to better support you? And how can we work better together? It's, Hey, we're, if our product isn't very good, or our service isn't very good. I'm going to think about ways to modify that instead of just complaining about it and saying, well, I'm a victim inside of this. There's nothing I can do from where I sit is, can I reach across the company? Can I build relationships? Can I network across to be able to make myself more influential in that space so that I can help solve problems and then leverage others and make them successful along the way. Uh, I think that's another piece of that. Uh, last piece I think we want to touch on just briefly before we jump off of this is, so let's say you're listening to this and let's say you're an executive of a company and you're listening to this and you're saying, oh my gosh, I think I've made a mistake on some of the people I've created. And you've created what is the, the so-called echo chamber, right? What if you are worried about what do, does my team make sandwiches for me from my employees when I'm gone? Are they, are they, uh, are they rolling out the red carpet? Are they catering to me a little too much? Or do they just, are they a bunch of, if I hired a bunch of yes people around me, like what can an executive do to get out of that? Yeah. Or like my favorite joke that I think about with this. So no offense, please here, but it, are they all white guys named Chad? You know, like, do I look around and everyone on the team looks like me, dresses like me, talks like me, then maybe I've created a little problem here. Maybe I've created an echo chamber and I've just looked at my strengths and thought, well, those are super duper great. So let's just get more of those in. Um, I think that's maybe where you're missing out, like how we're talking about on, are we also accepting of the weaknesses and that we have those and we see those and being accepting of your weaknesses means that you bring in people who are great at what you're not great at and you celebrate them. And so I think if you're an executive now and you're listening to this and like Don said, maybe you've created a little bit of toxic leadership culture. Maybe everybody looks like you, talks like you, dresses like you. I would challenge yourself to sit down and, and really think through this because I think what feels good about that, right, is that when we're all the same, there's a lot of consensus on the team, right? Like all my ideas get yeses. They are awesome. We move forward on those projects. There's very little conflict and that feels really nice. The kind of sad reality that though, is you are probably achieving less than other teams who have really diverse perspectives and strengths. And while those teams may naturally have a little bit more conflict, or we're going to push back on different ideas at times, they can actually achieve far more and they can achieve bigger projects or greater things because they have that. So I think my challenge to, to you, if you're feeling that you look around and it's the echo chamber is like, 
what are we missing here as a result of having it this way? And could that be holding us back? Or what are the, some of the things that we could do if we had people who had a different perspective or different strengths on this? We worked with a CEO a while ago who came to the conclusion that he liked to do a lot of business on the golf course. And as he looked around him, what he realized was that his entire executive team plays golf. Now, if your entire executive team plays golf, there's nothing wrong with people who play golf. I like to play golf, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a demographic of people that play golf. And what he recognized was that he, because he liked to do business around golf and because he, that means that you pretty much played golf if you wanted to be on that executive team, that if you didn't play golf, which meant you probably were a little bit different demographic than he was and thought differently, then he was inadvertently disqualifying you for executive positions. Now, that was never said out loud. He never thought that. And that was a realization that he had. And he realized that he was blocking some talents and some different perspectives from his team. Uh, and he immediately went to action and said, okay, when we go to promote the next group of people from this, I need to think differently about what I'm looking for. So a lot of this is, it's not blaming ourselves totally for like thinking that way. This, it's a very human thing to put people into buckets, to, 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 to have those biases. Like none of us, I'm not telling you to be bias free because we all have those biases. It's just this idea of maybe if we take back this idea of executive presence, and say it doesn't mean the old white guy in the suit who stands and sits in front of the table and speaks the loudest and has that command presence that maybe it's not that person. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. Then suddenly we open ourselves to a different perspective and it opens us up for people who do have universal executive traits of not having those barriers, who are good at managing their own strengths, good at managing the strengths of others and build or have a history of building really strong teams around them and driving real results. That's what executive presence should be. So that's our goal for today's episode is we wanted to take back the term executive presence. I, were we successful, guys? You think we did it? Did we nail it? My takeaway is that today's executive presence is a pickleball player who can coach others and is open to coaching themselves. That's, or any film that's scored with anyway, but no, I think it, that's exactly it. There's a lot of different folks at the table who can lead and use their influence while the, to support others. Are you saying this because I recently on LinkedIn expressed an interest in learning pickleball? Is that what you're saying, Philip? Was that a... I'm winking that direction because I think we're all going to start playing pickleball. <laughs> I think that'd be a lot of fun. Let's do that. We're going to start playing pickleball. See, I'm going to shoot all of this down of like, why does any of this have to be sports related? And why do we have to know so many sports metaphors to be successful in the business world? Uh, well, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll complain about Stephanie later, Philip, on the pickleball court. That'll be fun. Yeah. That's how it should be. Good. Because so yeah, we'll, we'll complain about you guys at the wine bar later. So. That's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, that no, I think I think that's it's funny because we say all that truly jokingly, right? But I think if even thinking through some of things like that, of, I mean, again, I am I am a woman in business, been doing this for quite a while now, and it is crazy how sometimes um, it gets to be so. I'll kindly call it like hobby centric. And you move up if you like doing the things that the CEO or the boss likes to do, or if you like to talk about the things that the boss likes to talk about. And I've known people who have like gone home and like done the research and figured out how to talk with the boss about this because I don't get FaceTime with this person unless I can talk that. 
And this is very thinly veiled about sports, right? So um, I would just encourage people with this of like, yeah, redefine this for your team. And what do you, what do you want it that to really look like for, for yourself? You know, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, maybe I don't have the executive presence that I want, lean into that and, and dig and learn about yourself a little bit more and the type of leader you want to be. And then for people who are leading teams too, of like, look around and are you making it hard for people to like actually help you as a leader because you've created an echo chamber? Very, very well said. I think we'll end on that point. So go out there and show your executive presence, learn your strengths, learn the strengths of others, learn how to work with others, build great teams around you that are empowered and aligned. And you are going to find yourself in a people-centric position where you will be successful in your current organization or maybe the next one that values people-centricness. So go out there and be the best that you can be there. I threw out the army thing at the very end. Sorry, that was an awkward ending. But we'll see you next time on the People-Centric Podcast. Thank you for listening to the People-Centric Podcast. We are so grateful for you joining us every week. If you like this content, please like and subscribe. Also, feel free to share on your social media with everyone that you know. It really does help us. If you would like to contact us, I have put our information in the show notes. Please reach out anytime. We love hearing from you. We will be back next week with a new topic. Until then, be well and lead well.